welcome to the Reliance Community Podcast. Worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 o'clock or 10.45 a.m. We hope you're encouraged by today's message. Amen. Welcome. If you're a visitor, welcome to Reliance. We call ourselves a family, so by default, you're part of the family. If you're streaming online uh, from any place out there, so glad, uh, we're so glad to have you tune in with us today. Uh, last week, Matt brought an awesome word on grace. And uh, I think all of us need to understand what the grace of God is. If you did not get a chance to, to listen to that, uh, you can go back to the podcast. He talked about how grace covers us, grace empowers us, and grace sends us out. And so I encourage you to go back and listen to that because I think we, it, it, was a, it was a word for the church in this season. So I want to encourage you guys in that. Today I want to target something that actually I, I, I saw about two, three weeks ago. Uh, uh, somebody had sent me an article, Worldview, in light of our culture. What does it look like to have a biblical worldview in light of our culture? Now, when we talk about a worldview, let me just set this up for you. We all have ideas. We all have things that we've watched or grown up with that have shaped us and molded us into how we look at and view things in the context of our world. So there's things that we've watched. It could be movies. It could be news. It could be our parents, society, books, whatever it is. And these things have all piled into our hearts and our minds. And this is how we view the world in which we live, through the eyes of what we've been put, the things that have been put into us. And so I think about as a kid, we loved watching movies when we were kids. And, and I think about if you grew up watching movies, Hollywood's probably had one of the most uh, impacts on us as a culture in us, how we see things through the eyes of the context of the world. For instance, if you've watched movies when you're growing up, it, your idea of romance may be that the knight in shining armor always comes in and, and wins the girl and gives her a kiss, she awakens up and they live happily ever after. And that happens all the time, right? If you're married, say, okay. Like we know that it does. Movies, you know that the hero, that's a worldview that doesn't line up with what we know. Or if you watch movies, you know that the hero always comes in with three seconds left and he stops the clock, right? And the hero always wins, right? Unless you watch the greatest movie of all time, Braveheart, and then you know he doesn't win, but they win, right? Like you get that part. So you, you, that's our mindset. That's our worldview. The hero comes in, the hero wins. But what happens when the hero doesn't win? We know that doesn't always pan out. Or as kids... We grew up, my brothers and I, we grew up where we lived in this context of going, look, we watched guys jump out of buildings with blankets and they worked for their parachutes. We broke a lot of bones, all right? That's a worldview that doesn't pan out. I'm just gonna share that with you. We watched Tarzan all the time. We tried to swing from tree to tree. I'm just telling you, a lot of stitches. Do I hear an amen? Or what about this, MacGyver? I'm talking about real MacGyver, like 80s MacGyver, not fake imitation MacGyver today, all right? I'm talking about real MacGyver. We grew up believing worldview, a paperclip, a piece of gum wrapper, and some household cleaner could do anything for you, right? There's a lot of dangerous things that happen with that. These were our worldviews. This is the way in which we saw things and wondered that this is how life should be. A worldview, we view reality and make sense from which we view reality. The framework from which we view reality and make sense of life in the world around us. This is the worldview that we're talking about. I have a 15-year-old, and I've got two in the middle, all the way down to a six-year-old. Four kids, 15, all the way down to six. And the 15-year-old, the six-year-old, and all in between, they're always asking the questions of why. 
Why this? Why that? We set a rule here. Well, why? My friends can do this. We set a rule here. Well, why? And so they're always asking, why are we setting the boundaries where we're setting them? What they're trying to do is through our eyes, they're trying to understand the world around them. Why, dad, is this our rule, but this isn't their rule? Why do my friends get to do this, but, they, th- th- but we can't do this? What they're trying to do is they're trying to frame this idea. They're trying to see through the scope of their eyes of why this or that happens in our family. Now, let me just tell you, at 15 years old, they know everything. Amen? (laughs) At 15 years old, there's this belief that we know everything. And all they're really trying to do is they're just trying to develop a world view, a way in which they function in culture. To have a biblical worldview is that we trust in God's view. To have a biblical worldview is that we trust in God's view. So, and our Christ view is over here, and our worldview is over here, and they don't intersect. And I'm going to tell you right now, there's nothing that you'll read in Scripture that says you should have a Christ view and a worldview, and they're separate. The Christ view that you have is the way in which you view the world. Amen? And as a church and as a body and as a people, we need those two things to intersect because our Christ view is how we operate in the world. Let me give you an example. When I talk about a biblical worldview isn't just having good morals inside of you. A biblical worldview isn't just having good morals inside of you. For instance, um, seeing that it's our job to feed the hungry can make you a good humanitarian, but miss the spiritual aspect of who Jesus is. Seeing that it's our job to feed the hungry, both physically and spiritually, so that Jesus Christ gets all the glory is a biblical worldview. It means that the ultimate goal of feeding the hungry is not so that some humanitarian aid gets a pat on the back, but so that those people see that no matter where their next meal comes from, they will always give glory to God that he's got them and takes care of them. It's a biblical worldview. The lens in which we look through the lens of scripture, and this is the tension that we wrestle with in the word of God. We look through the lens in this world, through the lens of scripture, and so everything that we see happen, and all the chaotic things that we see happen, and the way the world is functioning, we look through the lens of scripture and go, yeah, Jesus has talked about this. Scripture has talked about this. The Bible has talked about this. Why this is important to me is this article that was sent to me two, three weeks ago pointed out something about the biblical worldview of Christianity today in America. Barna is one of the largest research groups out there, and they research tons of things for Christianity and trends and things that are happening in Christianity. They poll and survey thousands and thousands and thousands of believers and really give a good litmus test for where the church is at, in particular in America, but also worldwide. And here's what their latest research has shown when it comes to the worldview or biblical view of Christianity. Only 10 to 17, 15 to 17% of Christians who consider that their faith is important, who consider that their faith is what drives them in life, only 10 to 15% have a biblical worldview. You might go, what does that mean? What does that mean only 10 to 15%? So they asked them these questions. These are the questions that Barna asked a group of moral truths exist, about what this looks like for them. They asked them the question, do absolute moral truths exist? Is absolute truth defined by the Bible? Did Jesus Christ live a sinless life? Is God the all-powerful, all-knowing creator of the universe, and does he still rule it today? Is salvation a gift from God that cannot be earned? Is Satan real? Does a Christian have a responsibility to share his or her faith in Christ with other people? 
is the Bible accurate in all of its teachings? So when it talks about 10 to 15% of believers that they pulled had a biblical worldview, that means 10 to 15% took that and said yes, and 85 to 90% said no. Now I'm gonna be a believer in this place and say that I'm praying that 100% of us understand that that right there needs to be a yes according to God's word, amen? That there's something that should stir our hearts because that's a staggering number of people going, I don't know if the Bible's true. I don't know if Jesus has absolute power. I don't know if at the end of the day, salvation's a free gift of God. I might have to earn it. These are people that are wrestling with that. So it's a staggering number because statistically in this room, somebody's wrestling with this right now. What does it look like? Statistically in this room, this right here, or somebody's watching online and we're wrestling with what does it look like to have a biblical worldview. Let me just tell you something, church. Um, as they kind of broke down then what is people's worldview, one of the top ones was something that they called new spirituality. New spirituality. Let me read some of the tenets of what this is. These Christians believed in this new spirituality in this, that all people pray to the same God or spirit no matter what name they use for that spiritual being. Let me just tell you, in the Bible it says that we pray in the name of Jesus. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, triune in one, amen? And that there's one way to heaven and it's through Jesus Christ. In this new spirituality, meaning and purpose come from becoming one with all that is. It's this idea that we come one with earth, we become one with this, we become one with that. Let me just tell you, in the Bible it says we become one with Jesus and that's how we live life. This third part may be one that we buy into quite a bit, that if you do good, you receive good. If you do bad, you receive bad, and we label that karma. Yet it appeals to so many Christians because there's this sense of justice. If I do good, somehow I'm gonna get good. And if I do bad or they do bad against me, somehow it's all gonna come back to bite them. And so we live in this mentality, but here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that while we were still in sin, Christ Jesus died for us. It wasn't about our goodness. It wasn't about our morality. You're here today because of God's goodness, amen? And so why, why, why is this a big deal to us right now in our culture? Because this isn't something new. Let me state this. This isn't something new. You go back to the very first chapter of Genesis when God begins to put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and there was one worldview, God's worldview. That was it. All of this that I've created for you in this Garden of Eden is beautiful, it's good, I want you to enjoy it, I want you to rule it, I want you to subdue it. That was the Garden of Eden. It was all for Adam and Eve to rule, enjoy, subdue, and have a good time with, and it says, and God walked with them in the cool of the morning. It was one view, it was God's view, and then something happened. Satan, the serpent, slipped in, and he spoke to Adam and Eve, and there was one thing in that God worldview of that he said, you cannot eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't do it. That's the worldview right there. That's God's worldview. And Satan, did God say? Did God say? Did God say? And, and Eve began to look at the fruit and Eve began to realize that fruit looked good to the eyes. The view that Satan was speaking into her life looked good. It looked appealing. It looked appetizing. It looked good to the eyes. And Eve took the view of Satan over the view of God and thus birthed another view, another worldview, a view through the eyes of ourself, what we see, what we deem. It's a big deal because we find ourselves so many times in the world not governed by the word of God but governed by worldviews. 
And there's warning in this all through scripture. In Colossians chapter two, verse eight, it says, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, listen to this church, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. That there are spiritual forces out there that may look spiritual that are trying to entice us into it, but at the end of the day, they are not God. This is why this is important for us to lock into as believers today. In Romans 12, two, it's the famous one. Do not conform. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Means if the world's going this way, if this is the worldview, the chances be transformed by the renewing of your what? Mind. Everything is going to wage war on your mind for how you view the things that are happening in the world right now. We know that the biblical worldview, according to scripture, what Paul says to Timothy, the biblical worldview will bring correction, rebuke, and encouragement. Everybody say rebuke because we love that one, right? Correction, rebuke, and encouragement. Paul charges Timothy that he is to teach believers with three things, correction, rebuke, and encouragement. And what's happened today because of our worldview and not wanting to offend anybody is we've camped out on the encouragement and forgot about the correction and forgot about the rebuke. We've done that as well. I love encouragement, I love to encourage people, I love to pour into people, yet Paul charges Timothy with three things and two of them are correction and rebuke, amen? And so I'm wondering, if our worldview isn't being shaped not by biblical things, but our worldview is being shaped by other things because we've taught Christ without the cross, blessing with how do you feel over the truth of every word of God? You guys with me? You mad? Well, it doesn't matter, right? Just kidding. Proverbs 4.20 says, my son, pay attention to my words, incline your ear to my sayings, do not lose sight of them. Keep them within your heart. We know Deuteronomy 6, 8, the Shema, it's talking about the word of God and, 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 and the promises of God, the covenant of God. And he says, tie them as reminders on your hands, bind them on your foreheads, write them on the doorposts of your houses and on your gates. Something about taking God's word, capturing it in our heart, and everything then from that becomes the wellspring of life. Jesus tempted in the wilderness, Matthew 4. All these worldviews, Satan trying to cast him, turn this into this, jump off this, do this. And Jesus turns to him with God's point of view, a biblical point of view, and says, it is written. And Satan disappears. If we're struggling with this church, and I believe that, that in light of Christianity today, just given the statistics, that 10 to 15% have a biblical worldview, that there has to be a reshape and reshifting in our hearts to what God says. And what's our starting point? How do we start this thing? How do we even get back? If, I mean, that's astronomical, 85 to 90%. How do we get back then to a biblical worldview? And I'm just gonna give you the baseline. It starts with this. At the very core of all of this, it's do I trust God? Not do I trust him a little bit, not do I theoretically trust him, in theory I trust him. I'm saying is the God, is God of the universe, is Jesus Christ Lord over your life in all areas, do I trust him no matter what? He's in charge of all things. Not 90%, not 95%, does he own it all? Do I trust him? And I'll tell you why that's so important because this was Israel's struggle throughout Old Testament history. 
God would do some miraculous move. God would do something powerful. God would reestablish them. Something awesome would happen. And then the way life works, something would come in. Some military armies trying to come against them. A famine comes, disease comes, whatever. And in that moment, even though they know that God has blessed them, even though they know that God has promised them things, even though they know that God has been with them, they turn and they begin to look back to Egypt. And they want to go back to Egypt because Egypt can feed them because Egypt can protect them. And so what they see is comfortability in Egypt. Egypt is actually slavery because they were enslaved for 400 years. And on the other side of this, you have God who's fulfilled his promises every time. And when difficulty comes and when tension comes and things feel like it's coming against them. And I want you to know in Christ, according to the word, difficulty is going to come. That difficulty actually equals freedom because we just draw more and more and more into him. And so Israel's history is locked in this battle of going, we know what you said, God, but we know that this feels comfortable and free, but we know that at the end of the day, it's got to be about you. But at the end of the day, we want to come over, and they're locked in this place of going back and forth in their worldview. Jesus, God, God is our worldview. No, 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 th this is our worldview. And they're in this back and forth all through the Old Testament. And it really comes down to you and I settling something in our hearts of saying, do we live life in a worldview of trusting Jesus in all things. For centuries, men and women have trusted Jesus when difficulties come. World War I, World War II, Vietnam, 9-11, Great Depression. In America alone, I'm just talking about even in America, we've been through some horrific things, and yet for so long there was such a high biblical view, worldview, that people would look at it and say, look, God's got us. Like he hasn't failed us. He brought us through this. We, we bound, banded together. He brought us through this. We were able to maneuver it. We, like for years, people have held to this, and we go, God, we have so much to be thankful for. And now all of a sudden, something's beginning to shift. We're going, I don't know if God's for us anymore. I don't even know if God is real anymore. I don't even know if Scripture is right anymore. And it comes down to the heart of Philippians 1.6. That you and I have to rally in our own hearts and believe that says, I am convinced. Somebody say convinced. I am convinced and confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will continue to, amplified version, perfect and complete it until the day of Christ Jesus, the time of his return. I'm convinced that God has started a work in you. Today, if you've never said yes to Jesus, today, if you're in here, you didn't get drugged by your girlfriend, you didn't get drugged by your spouse, you didn't get drugged in here by a friend, today you're in here because the Spirit of God wooed you into a place of intimacy with Him. And He wants to do a heart work in you. And Paul is saying, I'm convinced that this work that's beginning in your heart, that God is faithful to finish it into completion. The gospel, Genesis to Revelation, the gospel is a gospel that's one full story with many, many parts. And it begs the question, can I put my trust in Jesus alone? Not can I put in my trust in Jesus to get me out of hell. Not can I put my trust in Jesus to get me out of bad circumstances. Can I put my trust in Jesus alone? And so that are constantly tested, men and women, 
who trust God and put their faith in God that are constantly tested day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. They're constantly tested in that trust. Abraham, we're gonna talk about that in a minute. Abraham and the story of him and Sarah, the baby that's supposed to come, the promise of Isaac, and then God calling him to sacrifice his son. He's tested. You got Moses. Moses going back, leading a million people out of the greatest military the world had known in that time, Egypt. You got Noah building a boat when they had never seen really what rain was in the middle of a desert, and Noah's going, you sure we're supposed to do this thing? Trust tested. Esther, we need you to go before the king, which will probably get you killed, and we need you to plead on behalf of the Jewish people to save a nation. And we, we quote that, for such a time as this. And she does it, her faith is tested, and her trust in God is tested, and he comes through. We see it with Peter, we see it with the disciples, we see it with they're in the boat, and the storm comes. And it's all about, do you trust me, over and over and over again. It's the story woven all throughout the gospel. Do you trust me? If you say you do, I'm going to test it. If he is trustworthy then everything in life submits to his trustworthiness. My relationships, if he's trustworthy, my relationships, God, I trust you. If you're trustworthy, my bills, my finances, my struggles in that, I trust you. If he's trustworthy, the life chaos that's around me, the anxiety that fills my heart, the depression that fills my soul, if he's trustworthy, I trust you, Jesus, in it. My worldview is that you are not apart from that. It's not my Christ-likeness and my world-likeness. My Christ-likeness is my world-likeness. I'm one with you, and that's the way I live it out. If he is not... And here's, here's the struggle. I want you to pay attention because if he is not, if he is not the one that we place our trust in, then everything submits to the second best option, which is me or someone else that needs to fix it. If Jesus is not trustworthy, church, my worldview is that someone else has to fix it. And it's either gonna be me, I've gotta fix me, or someone that I elect, or someone that I put in power, or someone that I allow to come in. They've got to fix what's going on in my life. And I will put my trust in myself, or I'll put my trust in somebody else. And we all know that when we put our trust in somebody else, the chances of us, uh, them failing us, or me failing me, are pretty high, amen? We see this play out in Israel's history as well. God, up to this point in the Old Testament, in the book of Judges, has appointed leaders. He's got prophets, priests, and these judges. And they're the ones who kind of govern everything. They've got one king, and God is their king. God says, I want to be your king. I want to be your king. I want to be your king. I'll be your king. I'll take care of you. I'll protect you. I'll go before you. And so these judges and these prophets are leading the way, and then something happens. The people rebel against the king, God. And in 1 Samuel 8, he says, they said to him, the people said to Samuel, you are old, your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you that they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king and they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day. From the day I brought them out of slavery, they have rejected me, forsaking me, serving other gods, so they are doing now to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim his, right, his rights as. 
So, so, so Samuel goes back to the people and says, look, God says he'll give you a king, but know this, your king, will ens- your king will enslave your sons and daughters. They'll make them do his bidding. Your king will take your lands. Your king will take the best of what you have. Your king will do these things. It will not be an easy life. It will be a harsh life. It'll be so much different than what God has given us. Now listen to this, church. Verse 19, the people respond back. They refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations. We will have a worldview. We have a point of view. We will see the world in the context like all the other nations do with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. Wait a second, scripture says that Jesus, or that that God led them and went out before them and that God fought their battles for them, right? And it was all fine and dandy when things were good, but when things were tough, they had a worldview that says, I wanna be like everybody else. Someone else will fix our problems. And we will always look for somebody to fix it for us. Surely this person, surely if we get this person, surely if this person comes in, surely if we have this, that will be our answer to the solution and we've seen where that leads us. Year after year, day after day. But when we focus on the fact that we have a biblical world view, we see that at the end of the day, Jesus is king and he's already written written the end of the story, amen? We we already know it. How we get there, how that works itself out, I couldn't tell you how that's gonna work itself out. But at the end of the day, I know who wrote the end of the story. I know that the king who sits on the throne at the end is not a man. But God, fully man, and God, fully God, in Jesus Christ. So how practically do we get there? There's three three stories, just quickly, I want to share with you, really quickly, I want to share with you. First one is that story of Abraham and Isaac. Grew up in church. These are three stories we've heard probably a thousand times. I want you to capture the heart. Abraham and Isaac... Abraham's told by God in his old age, I'm gonna give you a son, his wife's barren. They're old, 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 they're not gonna have kids. She's like, it's never gonna happen, never gonna happen, never gonna happen. They wait, 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 wait. It's like 20 years when God gave him this promise. Abraham goes, I'm gonna do it in my own power. He gets with one of his maidservants, births Ishmael. Ishmael, we know, is birthed in a man-made way. God says, that's not what I promised. I told you and Sarah, you're gonna have a son. Eventually, Sarah becomes pregnant, Isaac is born. Now Abraham's got a problem. He's got a promise of God and he's got something he birthed in a man-made way. And now there's tension. God's faithful, Isaac begins to grow, and then it comes to Genesis 22, and it says, sometime later, God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, Abraham says, here I am. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love. I think it's important that he says, take your son, your only son, whom I love. Let me tell you why, because I think that Abraham would have a tendency to go, do I have another son somewhere that I can give up? Which one do I like the best? But remember, God's testing Abraham. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. I will show you early, somebody say early. He didn't wait. He didn't say, hey God, sorry, we woke up super late, like try to prolong this thing. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. How could you do that, Abraham? Because he didn't have a worldview that was from the world. He had a biblical worldview that God had never failed him yet. When he had cut enough wood, 
Early next morning, he got up. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up, saw the place in the distance, and he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship. Wait a second, that's not what he said, Abraham. He didn't say you're gonna worship. He said you're gonna sacrifice. But Abraham had a world, had a, had a biblical worldview that when he said sacrifice, Abraham saw it as worship. We will worship and then we will come back to you. That's not what he said. He didn't say you would both come back. He said, you're taking your son up there to sacrifice. But Abraham knew. Abraham knew with his biblical worldview, God's never failed me. God's never filled a promise. If he gave me a promise, then he's going to fulfill his promise. So one way or another, both of us are coming back. Trusting in God doesn't always mean understanding. Amen, church. Trusting doesn't always mean understanding. It means trusting when you don't understand. Lean not on my own understanding, but in all of my ways, I'll acknowledge you. You'll make my path straight. These are a defining moment for Abraham, a defining moment for Isaac, a defining moment for Sarah in this moment to put their trust fully in God and say, through the biblical worldview, God, you've never promised something that you withdrawn. You've never promised something that you failed on. Trusting is being honest about our doubt and frustrations and yet believing God deeply in his purposes. Are we willing to put our trust on the line? When the outcome seems bad, are we willing to put our trust on the line? Numbers 23, 19. Burn this in your heart. Numbers 23, 19. God is not human that he should lie. He's not a human being that he should change his mind. He do, does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? We know in the heart of God, he will never promise something he will not fulfill and he will never be a liar, ever. Our biblical worldview, God will never be a liar. David, same thing. Imagine David, giant slayer, hero over Goliath. David, anointed king of Israel, numerous military campaigns, head over military operations, marries the king's daughter. He's thinking, man, all of this is exactly how I pictured it until it wasn't. And for 10 years, he's on the run. For 10 years, he's going from cave to cave to cave to cave to cave, hiding out because Saul's after him to kill him. And so David's probably thinking, man, it looks like my whole life has been laid out. It's so good until it wasn't. And he's running, and he's hiding out, and he's living on the fringe. And I'm sure there were times where he's going, Lord, why would you do this to me? Why would you do this to me? In difficult times, church, if we don't fully trust in God, we may be tempted to believe that God's abandoned us. Tempted to believe that we've lost, God's lost vision for us. God, you just don't have vision for me anymore, do you? Tempted to believe that our dreams and the, the things that God shared with us, they're just shattered. We're going to be tempted to believe that. But David's destiny was fulfilled and he became king of Israel because God will always fulfill his promise. The biblical worldview says God will always fulfill his promise. Though our circumstances change, our destiny does not. Though your circumstances change, your destiny does not. Though your circumstances change, your destiny does not. Last one, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. How many of you guys learned that in kids' church? Daniel, book of Daniel chapter three. King Nebuchadnezzar's just pronounced, everybody's gonna bow down and worship me and my golden statue. 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said they won't. They are brought before King Nebuchadnezzar. They neither, neither will serve your gods nor worship the image of God you have set up. And he tells them, if you do not worship it, you'll be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, oh, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves in this matter. <laughs> we do not need to, everybody say defend. We don't need to defend ourselves in this matter. I can spend my whole life trying to defend myself in a matter that God has already sealed. And if I have a biblical worldview, I don't need to defend myself to you. Yeah. We don't need to defend ourselves in this matter. If we are thrown in the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hands. But if he does not, we want you to know your majesty that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. In their position, they felt like they did not need to defend their decision to comply with the king's edict. They need to do it. They knew in their heart what God had already shared with them. They were calm, they were confident in the face of this threat of King Nebuchadnezzar. And they had faith that their God would save them and take care of them. And the part that I love the most about this is the part where they said, and even if he doesn't save us, even if he doesn't save us, we will still not bow down and worship your statue. Listen to this church. Their faith allowed for contentment in whatever the outcome. Does your trust in God allow for contentment no matter what the outcome? Paul says to be content in all things. And we go, what does that even look like? When we have faith where our biblical worldview is that God will get what God will get. God will get what God wants. God will get what God wants. If that's our biblical worldview, then no matter what the outcome is, no matter what the outcome is, we can be content in it. Amen? They were not motivated by their own success and their own glory. They refused to bow down. The fact that God would be glorified whether they were sacrificed or whether they had triumphed was all that mattered to them. Our God will be glorified whether we are sacrificed in the furnace or we have triumph and we come out, our God will be glorified. So here's the deal. If you buy into this, if you believe this, if your biblical worldview is that God has it, God owns it, God knows it, if that's your biblical worldview, whatever you're facing right now, marriage issues, financial issues, struggle with morality, addiction, just a complacency in life, whatever it is, if you believe in a biblical worldview, God has you. If you put your, your trust in Him and you say you're it, not 95%, 100%, God has you. And whether you have a sacrifice that happens in your life or triumph, he's glorified. Amen, church? So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Stand up with me today, would you? We're going to sing this song, but not as a worship song today. We're going to sing this as a declaration that wherever you struggled with trust in your life, wherever you've struggled with giving God 100%, wherever you've struggled with having a biblical worldview, we're saying, God, we're going to move from not just a biblical worldview and an own worldview. My biblical worldview is going to be the way I see everything happening in life. And no matter what mountain there is, is, is in my way, no matter what challenge is in my way, no matter what, I put my trust in you. So I want to pray this over this church and we're going to sing this together. Father, I pray that
a body of believers, when we leave these doors, that we would know, Father, that you've set a course, you've set a destiny, you've set a purpose on every life in here, and you will get your way. And I pray, God, that the core of what it looks like with a biblical worldview is to say, I trust you in all things. I trust you. I trust you. When my faith is tested, I trust you. When my trust is tested, I trust you. So I pray it over every life in here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's sing this out today, church. Thanks for listening today. If you want to find out how to get involved, go to reliancecommunity.org.